Book Six, Chapter Three of the History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book Six, Chapter Three Second Reconnoitering Expedition, The Capture of Cuernavaca, Battles at Xochimilco narrow escape of cortez he enters to cuba notwithstanding the relief which had been afforded to the people of chalco it was so ineffectual that envoys from that city again arrived at tezcuco bearing a hieroglyphical chart on which were depicted several strong places in their neighborhood garrisoned by the aztecs from which they expected annoyance cortez determined this time to take the affair into his own hands and to scour the country so effectually as to place chalco if possible in a state of security he did not confine himself to this object but proposed before his return to pass quite around the great lakes and reconnoitre the country to the south of them in the same manner as he had done to the west in the course of his march he would direct his arms against some of the strong places from which the mexicans might expect support in the siege two or three weeks must elapse before the completion of the brigantines and, if no other good resulted from the expedition, it would give active occupation to his troops, whose turbulent spirits might fester into discontent in the monotonous existence of a camp. He selected for the expedition thirty horse and three hundred Spanish infantry, with a considerable body of Tlascalan and Tezcucan warriors. The remaining garrison he left in charge of the trusty Sandoval, who, with the friendly lord of the capital, would watch over the construction of the brigantines and protect them from the assaults of the aztecs on the fifth of april he began his march and on the following day arrived at chalco where he was met by a number of the confederate chiefs with the aid of his faithful interpreters dona marina and aguilar he explained to them the objects of his present expedition stated his purpose soon to enforce the blockade of mexico and required their cooperation with the whole strength of their levies to this they readily assented and he soon received a sufficient proof of their friendly disposition in the forces which joined him on the march amounting according to one of the army to more than had ever before followed his banner taking a southerly direction the troops after leaving chalco struck into the recesses of the wild sierra which with its bristling peaks serves as a formidable palisade to fence round the beautiful valley while within its rugged arms it shuts up many a green and fruitful pasture of its own as the spaniards passed through its deep gorges they occasionally wound around the base of some huge cliff or rocky eminence on which the inhabitants had built their town in the same manner as was done by the people of europe in the feudal ages a position which however favorable to the picturesque intimates a sense of insecurity as the cause of it which may reconcile us to the absence of this striking appendage on the landscape in our own more fortunate country the occupants of these airy pinnacles took advantage of their situation to shower down stones and arrows upon the troops as they defiled through the narrow passes of the sierra though greatly annoyed by their incessant hostilities cortez held on his way till winding around the base of a castellated cliff occupied by a strong garrison of indians he was so severely pressed that he felt to pass on without chastising the aggressors would imply a want of strength which must disparage him in the eyes of his allies 
Halting in the valley, therefore, he detached a small body of light troops to scale the heights, while he remained with the main body of the army below, to guard against surprise from the enemy. The lower region of the rocky eminence was so steep that the soldiers found it no easy matter to ascend, scrambling as well as they could, with hand and knee. But, as they came up to the more exposed view of the garrison, the latter rolled down huge masses of rock, which, bounding along the declivity and breaking into fragments, crushed the foremost assailants, and mangled their limbs in a frightful manner. Still they strove to work their way upward, now taking advantage of some gully, worn by the winter torrent, now sheltering themselves behind a projecting cliff, or some straggling tree anchored among the crevices of the mountain. It was all in vain, for no sooner did they emerge again into open view than the rocky avalanche thundered on their heads with a fury against which steelhelm and cuirass were as little defense as gossamer. All the party were more or less wounded. Eight of the number were killed on the spot, a loss the little band could ill afford, and the gallant ensign Coral, who led the advance, saw the banner in his hand torn to shreds. Cortez, at length convinced of the impracticability of the attempt, at least without a more severe loss than he was disposed to incur, commanded a retreat. It was high time, for a large body of the enemy were on full march across the valley to attack him. He did not wait for their approach, but gathering his broken files together, headed his cavalry, and spurred bodily against them. On the level plain the Spaniards were on their own ground. The Indians, unable to sustain the furious onset, broke and fell back before it. The fight soon became a rout, and the fiery cavaliers, dashing over them at full gallop or running them through with their lances, took some revenge for their late discomfiture. The pursuit continued for some miles, till the nimble foe made their escape into the rugged fastnesses of the Sierra, where the Spaniards did not care to follow. The weather was sultry, and, as the country was nearly destitute of water, the men and horses suffered extremely. Before evening they reached a spot overshadowed by a grove of wild mulberry trees, in which some scanty springs afforded a miserable supply to the army. Near the place rose another rocky summit of the Sierra, garrisoned by a stronger force than the one which they had encountered in the former part of the day, and at no great distance stood a second fortress at a still greater height, though considerably smaller than its neighbor. This was also tenanted by a body of warriors, who, as well as those of the adjoining cliff, soon made active demonstration of their hostility by pouring down missiles on the troops below. Cortes, anxious to retrieve the disgrace of the morning, ordered an assault on the larger, and, as it seemed, more practicable eminence. But, though two attempts were made with great resolution, they were repulsed with loss to the assailants. The rocky sides of the hill had been artificially cut and smoothed, so as greatly to increase the natural difficulties of the ascent. The shades of evening now closed around, and Cortes drew off his men to the mulberry grove, where he took up his bivouac for the night, deeply chagrined at having been twice foiled by the enemy on the same day. During the night the Indian force, which occupied the adjoining height, passed over to their brethren to aid them in the encounter, which they foresaw would be renewed on the following morning. No sooner did the Spanish general, at the break of day, become aware of this maneuver, than, with his usual quickness, he took advantage of it. He detached a body of musketeers and crossbowmen to occupy the deserted eminence, purposing, as soon as this was done, to lead the assault in person against the other. It was not long before the Castilian banner was seen streaming from the rocky pinnacle, 
when the general instantly led up his men to the attack. And, while the garrison were meeting them resolutely on that quarter, the detachment on the neighboring heights poured into the place a well-directed fire, which so much distressed the enemy, that, in a very short time, they signified their willingness to capitulate. On entering the place, the Spaniards found that a plain of some extent ran along the crest of the Sierra, and that it was tenanted, not only by men, but by women and their families, with their effects. No violence was offered by the victors to the property or persons of the vanquished, and the knowledge of his lenity induced the Indian garrison, who had made so stout a resistance on the morning of the preceding day, to tender their submission. After a halt of two days in this sequestered region, the army resumed its march in a southwesterly direction on Huaxtepec, the same city which had surrendered to Sandoval. Here they were kindly received by the cacique, and entertained in his magnificent gardens, which Cortes and his officers, who had not before seen them, compared with the best in Castile. Still threading the wild mountain mazes, the army passed through Hautepec and several other places, which were abandoned at their approach. As the inhabitants, however, hung in armed bodies on their flanks and rear, doing them occasionally some mischief, the Spaniards took their revenge by burning the deserted towns. Thus holding on their fiery track, they descended the bold slope of the Cordilleras, which, on the south, were far more precipitous than on the Atlantic side. Indeed, a single day's journey is sufficient to place the traveller on a level several thousand feet lower than that occupied by him in the morning, thus conveying him in a few hours through the climates of many degrees of latitude. On the ninth day of their march, the troops arrived before the strong city of Quaunawak, or Cuernavaca, as since called by the Spaniards. It was the ancient capital of the Tlauicas, and the most considerable place for wealth and population in this part of the country. It was tributary to the Aztecs, and a garrison of this nation was quartered within its walls. The town was singularly situated on a projecting piece of land, encompassed by barrancas, or formidable ravines, except on one side, which opened on a rich and well-cultivated country. For, though the place stood at an elevation of between five and six thousand feet above the level of the sea, it had a southern exposure so sheltered by the mountain barrier on the north, that its climate was as soft and genial as that of a much lower region. The Spaniards, on arriving before this city, the limit of their southerly progress, found themselves separated from it by one of the vast barrancas before noticed, which resembled one of those frightful rents not unfrequent in the Mexican Andes, the result, no doubt, of some terrible convulsion in earlier ages. The rocky sides of the ravine sunk perpendicularly down, and so bare as scarcely to exhibit even a vestige of the cactus or of the other hardy plants with which nature in these fruitful regions so gracefully covers up her deformities. At the bottom of the ravine was seen a little stream, which, oozing from the stony bowels of the Sierra, tumbled along its narrow channel, and contributed, by its perpetual moisture, to the exuberant fertility of the valley. This rivulet, which at certain seasons of the year was swollen to a torrent, was traversed at some distance below the town, where the sloping sides of the barranca afforded a more practicable passage, by two rude bridges, both of which had been broken in anticipation of the coming of the Spaniards. The latter had now arrived on the brink of the chasm. It was, as has been remarked, of no great width, and the army drawn up on its borders was directly exposed to the archery of the garrison, on whom its own fire made little impression, 
protected as they were by their defenses. The general, annoyed by his position, sent a detachment to seek a passage lower down, by which the troops might be landed on the other side. But although the banks of the ravine became less formidable as they descended, they found no means of crossing the river, till a path unexpectedly presented itself, on which, probably, no one before had ever been daring enough to venture. From the cliffs of the opposite sides of the barranca, two huge trees shot up to an enormous height, and, inclining towards each other, interlaced their boughs so as to form a sort of natural bridge. Across this avenue, in mid-air, a Tlascalan conceived it would not be difficult to pass to the opposite bank. The bold mountaineer succeeded in the attempt, and was soon followed by several others of his countrymen, trained to feats of agility and strength among their native hills. The Spaniards imitated their example. It was a perilous effort for an armed man to make his way over this aerial causeway, swayed to and fro by the wind, where the brain might become giddy, and where a single false movement of hand or foot would plunge him into the abyss below. Three of the soldiers lost their hold and fell. The rest, consisting of some twenty or thirty Spaniards, and a considerable number of Tlascalans, alighted in safety on the other bank. There hastily forming, they marched with all speed on the city. The enemy, engaged in their contest with the Castilians on the opposite bank of the ravine, were taken by surprise, which, indeed, could scarcely have been exceeded if they had seen their foe drop from the clouds on the field of battle. They made a brave resistance, however, when fortunately the Spaniards succeeded in repairing one of the dilapidated bridges, in such a manner as to enable both cavalry and foot to cross the river, though with much delay. The horse, under an Andres de Tapia, instantly rode up to the succor of their countrymen. They were soon followed by Cortes at the head of the remaining battalions, and the enemy, driven from one point to another, were compelled to evacuate the city and to take refuge among the mountains. The buildings in one quarter of the town were speedily wrapped in flames. The place was abandoned to pillage, and, as it was one of the most opulent marts in the country, it amply compensated the victors for the toil and danger they had encountered. The trembling caciques, returning soon after to the city, appeared before Cortes, and deprecating his resentment by charging the blame, as usual, on the Mexicans, threw themselves on his mercy. Satisfied with their submission, he allowed no further violence to the inhabitants. Having thus accomplished the great object of his expedition across the mountains, the Spanish commander turned his face northwards to recross the formidable barrier which divided him from the valley. The ascent, steep and laborious, was rendered still more difficult by fragments of rock and loose stones which encumbered the passes. The weather was sultry, and, as the stony soil was nearly destitute of water, the troops suffered severely from thirst. Several of them, indeed, fainted on the road, and a few of the Indian allies perished from exhaustion. The line of march must have taken the army across the eastern shoulder of the mountain, called the Cruz del Marques, or Cross of the Marques, from a huge stone cross erected there to indicate the boundary of the territories granted by the crown to Cortes as Marques of the Valley. Much, indeed, of the route lately traversed by the troops lay across this princely domain subsequently assigned to the conqueror. The point of attack selected by the general was Xochimilco, or the Field of Flowers, as its name implies, from the floating gardens which rode at anchor, as it were, on the neighboring waters. It was one of the most potent and wealthy cities in the Mexican valley, and a staunch vassal of the Aztec crown. 
it stood like the capital itself partly in the water and was approached in that quarter by causeways of no great length the town was composed of houses like those of most other places of like magnitude in the country mostly of cottages or huts made of clay and the light bamboo mingled with aspiring teocallis and edifices of stone belonging to the more opulent classes as the spaniards advanced they were met by skirmishing parties of the enemy who after dismissing a light volley of arrows rapidly retreated before them as they took the direction of xochimilco cortez inferred that they were prepared to resist him in considerable force it exceeded his expectations on traversing the principal causeway he found it occupied at the further extremity by a numerous body of warriors who stationed on the opposite sides of a bridge which had been broken were prepared to dispute his passage they had constructed a temporary barrier of palisades which screened them from the fire of the musketry but the water in its neighborhood was very shallow and the cavaliers and infantry plunging into it soon made their way swimming or wading as they could in face of a storm of missiles to the landing near the town here they closed with the enemy and hand to hand after a sharp struggle drove them back on the city a few however taking the direction of the open country were followed up by the cavalry the great mass hotly pursued by the infantry were driven through street and lane without much further resistance cortez with a few followers disengaging himself from the tumult remained near the entrance of the city he had not been there long when he was assailed by a fresh body of indians who suddenly poured into the place from a neighboring dyke the general with his usual fearlessness threw himself into the midst in hopes to check their advance but his own followers were too few to support him and he was overwhelmed by the crowd of combatants his horse lost his footing and fell and cortez who received a severe blow on the head before he could rise was seized and dragged off in triumph by the indians at this critical moment a tlascalan who perceived the general's extremity sprang like one of the wild ocelots of his own forests into the midst of the assailants and endeavored to tear him from their grasp two of the general's servants also speedily came to the rescue and cortez with their aid and that of the brave tlascalan succeeded in regaining his feet and shaking off his enemies to vault into the saddle and brandish his good lance was but the work of a moment others of his men quickly came up and the clash of arms reaching the ears of the spaniards who had gone in pursuit they returned and after a desperate conflict forced the enemy from the city their retreat however was intercepted by the cavalry returning from the country and thus hemmed in between the opposite columns they were cut to pieces or saved themselves only by plunging into the lake this was the greatest personal danger which cortez had yet encountered his life was in the power of the barbarians and had it not been for their eagerness to take him prisoner he must undoubtedly have lost it to the same cause may be frequently attributed the preservation of the spaniards in these engagements it was not yet dusk when cortez and his followers re-entered the city and the general's first act was to ascend a neighboring teocalli and reconnoitre the surrounding country he there beheld a sight which might have troubled a bolder spirit than his the surface of the salt lake was darkened with canoes and the causeway for many a mile with indian squadrons apparently on their march towards the christian camp in fact no sooner had guatemozin been apprised of the arrival of the white men at xochimilco that he mustered his levies in great force to relieve the city 
they were now on their march and as the capital was but four leagues distant would arrive soon after nightfall cortez made active preparations for the defense of his quarters he stationed a corps of pikemen along the landing where the aztecs would be likely to disembark he doubled the sentinels and with his principal officers made the rounds repeatedly in the course of the night in addition to other causes for watchfulness the bolts of the crossbowmen were nearly exhausted and the archers were busily employed in preparing and adjusting shafts to the copper heads of which great store had been provided for the army there was little sleep in the camp that night it passed away however without molestation from the enemy though not stormy it was exceedingly dark but although the spaniards on duty could see nothing they distinctly heard the sound of many oars in the water at no great distance from the shore yet those on board the canoes made no attempt to land distrusting or advised it may be of the preparations made for their reception with early dawn they were under arms and without waiting for movement of the spaniards poured into the city and attacked them in their own quarters the spaniards who were gathered in the area round one of the teocallis were taken at a disadvantage in the town where the narrow lanes and streets many of them covered with a smooth and slippery cement offered obvious impediments to the maneuvers of cavalry but cortes hastily formed his musketeers and crossbowmen and poured such a lively well-directed fire into the enemy's ranks as threw him into disorder and compelled him to recoil the infantry with their long pikes followed up the blow and the horse charging at full speed as the retreating aztecs emerged from the city drove them several miles along the main land at some distance however they were met by a strong reinforcement of their countrymen and rallying the tide of battle turned and the cavaliers swept along by it gave the rein to their steeds and rode back at full gallop towards the town they had not proceeded very far when they came upon the main body of the army advancing rapidly to their support thus strengthened they once more returned to the charge and the rival hosts met together in full career with the shock of an earthquake for a time victory seemed to hang in the balance as the mighty press reeled to and fro under the opposite impulse and a confused shout rose up towards heaven in which the war-whoop of the savage was mingled with the battle-cry of the christian a still stranger sound on those sequestered shores but in the end castilian valor or rather castilian arms and discipline proved triumphant the enemy faltered gave way and recoiling step by step the retreat soon terminated in a rout and the spaniards following up the flying foe drove them from the field with such dreadful slaughter that they made no further attempt to renew the battle the victors were now undisputed masters of the city it was a wealthy place well stored with indian fabrics cotton gold featherwork and other articles of luxury and use affording a rich booty to the soldiers while engaged in the work of plunder a party of the enemy landing from their canoes fell on some of the stragglers laden with merchandise and made four of them prisoners it created a greater sensation among the troops than if ten times that number had fallen on the field indeed it was rare that a spaniard allowed himself to be taken alive in the present instance the unfortunate men were taken by surprise they were hurried to the capital and soon after sacrificed when their arms and legs were cut off by the command of the ferocious young chief of the aztecs and sent round to the different cities with the assurance that this would be the fate of the enemies of mexico from the prisoners taken in the late engagement 
Cortes learned that the forces already sent by Guatimozin formed but a small part of his levies, that his policy was to send detachment after detachment until the Spaniards, however victorious they might come off from the contest with each individually, would, in the end, succumb from mere exhaustion and thus be vanquished, as it were, by their own victories. The soldiers having now sacked the city, Cortes did not care to await further assaults from the enemy in his present quarters. On the fourth morning after his arrival, he mustered his forces on a neighboring plain. They came many of them reeling under the weight of their plunder. The general saw this with uneasiness. They were to march, he said, through a populous country, all in arms to dispute their passage. To secure their safety, they should move as light and unencumbered as possible. The sight of so much spoil would sharpen the appetite of their enemies and draw them on like a flock of famished eagles after their prey. But his eloquence was lost on his men, who plainly told him that they had a right to the fruit of their victories, and what they had won with their swords they knew well enough how to defend with them. Seeing them thus bent on their purpose, the general did not care to balk their inclinations. He ordered the baggage to the center and placed a few of the cavalry over it, dividing the remainder between the front and rear, in which latter post, as that most exposed to attack, he also stationed his arquebusiers and crossbowmen. Thus prepared, he resumed his march, but first set fire to the combustible buildings of Xochimilco, in retaliation for the resistance he had met there. The light of the burning city streamed high into the air, sending its ominous glare far and wide across the waters, and telling the inhabitants on their margin that the fatal strangers, so long predicted by their oracles, had descended like a consuming flame upon their borders. Small bodies of the enemy were seen occasionally at a distance, but they did not venture to attack the army on its march, which before noon brought them to Cohoacan, a large town about two leagues distance from Xochimilco. One could scarcely travel that distance in this populous quarter of the valley without meeting with a place of considerable size, oftentimes the capital of what had formerly been an independent state. The inhabitants, members of different tribes, and speaking dialects somewhat different, belonged to the same great family of nations who had come from the real or imaginary region of Aztlan on the far northwest. Gathered round the shores of their alpine sea, these petty communities continued, after their incorporation with the Aztec monarchy, to maintain a spirit of rivalry in their intercourse with one another, which, as with the cities on the Mediterranean in the feudal ages, quickened their mental energies and raised the Mexican valley higher in the scale of civilization than most other quarters of Anahuac. The town at which the army had now arrived was deserted by its inhabitants, and Cortes halted two days there to restore his troops and give the needful attention to the wounded. He made use of the time to reconnoitre the neighbouring ground, and taking with him a strong detachment, descended on the causeway which led from Cohoacan to the great avenue Iztapalapan. At the point of intersection, called Xoloc, he found a strong barrier or fortification, behind which a Mexican force was entrenched. Their archery did some mischief to the Spaniards as they came within bowshot, but the latter, marching intrepidly forward in face of the arrowy shower, stormed the works, and, after an obstinate struggle, drove the enemy from their position. Cortes then advanced some way on the great causeway of Iztapalapan, but he beheld the further extremity darkened by a numerous array of warriors, and as he did not care to engage in unnecessary hostilities, 
especially as his ammunition was nearly exhausted, he fell back and retreated to his own quarters. The following day the army continued its march, taking the road to Tacuba, but a few miles distant. On the way it experienced much annoyance from the straggling parties of the enemy, who, furious at the sight of the booty which the invaders were bearing away, made repeated attacks on their flanks and rear. Cortes retaliated, as on the former expedition, by one of their own stratagems, but with less success than before, for, pursuing the retreating enemy too hotly, he fell with his cavalry into an ambuscade which they had prepared for him in their turn. He was not yet a match for their wily tactics. The Spanish cavaliers were enveloped in a moment by their subtle foe, and separated from the rest of the army. But, spurring on their good steeds, and charging in a solid column together, they succeeded in breaking through the Indian array, and in making their escape, except two individuals who fell into the enemy's hands. They were the general's own servants, who had followed him faithfully through the whole campaign, and he was deeply affected by their loss, rendered the more distressing by the consideration of the dismal fate that awaited them. When the little band rejoined the army, which had halted in some anxiety in their absence, under the walls of Tacuba, the soldiers were astonished at the dejected mien of their commander, which too visibly betrayed his emotion. The sun was still high in the heavens when they entered the ancient capital of the Tepenex. The first care of Cortes was to ascend the principal Teocali and survey the surrounding country. It was an admirable point of view, commanding the capital, which lay but little more than a league distant, and its immediate environs. Cortes was accompanied by Alderete, the treasurer, and some other cavaliers who had lately joined his banner. The spectacle was still new to them, and, as they gazed on the stately city, with its broad lake covered with boats and barges hurrying to and fro, some laden with merchandise or fruits and vegetables, for the markets of Tenochtitlan, others crowded with warriors, they could not withhold their admiration at the life and activity of the scene, declaring that nothing but the hand of Providence could have led their countrymen safe through the heart of this powerful empire. Tacuba was the point which Cortes had reached on his former expedition around the northern side of the valley. He had now, therefore, made the entire circuit of the great lake, had reconnoitred the several approaches to the capital, and inspected with his own eyes the dispositions made on the opposite quarters for its defense. He had no occasion to prolong his stay in Tacuba, the vicinity of which to Mexico must soon bring on him its whole warlike population. Early on the following morning, he resumed his march, taking the route pursued in the former expedition, north of the small lakes. He met with less annoyance from the enemy than on the preceding days, a circumstance owing in some degree, perhaps, to the state of the weather, which was exceedingly tempestuous. The soldiers, with their garments heavy with moisture, plowed their way with difficulty through the miry roads flooded by the torrents. On one occasion, as their military chronicler informs us, the officers neglected to go the rounds of the camp at night, and the sentinels to mount guard, trusting to the violence of the storm for their protection. Yet the fate of Navarrez might have taught them not to put their faith in the elements. At Acolman, in the Acolwan territory, they were met by Sandoval, with the friendly cacique of Tezcuco and several cavaliers, among whom were some recently arrived from the islands. They cordially greeted their countrymen, and communicated the tidings that the canal was completed, and that the brigantines, rigged and equipped, were ready to be launched on the bosom of the lake. 
there seemed to be no reason, therefore, for longer postponing operations against Mexico. With this welcome intelligence, Cortes and his victorious legions made their entry for the last time into the Acolwin capital, having consumed just three weeks in completing the circuit of the valley. End of Book 6, Chapter 3